Good morning. I'm going to be reading out of Genesis 32, verses 22 through 24. And it's titled, Jacob Wrestles with God. The same night he rose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jacob. He came to them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Lord, I just pray that uh, you'd help the uh, pastor to just um, uh, instruct and teach us. And if, we, if any of us are struggling with wrestling with God, Lord, I just pray that it would become evident to us and uh, that we would uh, uh, just uh, uh, get in step with you. We just thank you for... Uh, Tyler's willingness to uh, put a message together and to preach and just pray that you would just open our ears to hear. We just thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And uh, for those of you that don't know, we have a Sunday school for uh, K to first grade, I think it is, called Alphas. And so you're welcome to be dismissed at this time. And if you have uh, children in nursery age for uh, under K, uh, we do have nursery as well available. Thank you. Good morning, church. It is a privilege to preach God's word this morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Well, I'll never forget September 11th, 2014. I can still hear the words of my executive officer, the second, of, second in charge of my ship, uh, look me in the eye and say, you need to go home tonight and get your dress blues ready. You'll likely stand trial at captain's mass in the next few days. An hour before this conversation, I'd been in charge of an evolution that had gone terribly wrong. Uh, my job on the ship was the first lieutenant, and I was responsible for all boat evolutions. And that particular day, we were lowering one of our boats, and the hydraulic lines in the davit, well, they weren't, the hydraulic fluid wasn't there, and the davit free fell. Uh, Twenty of my sailors were on the lines, and thankfully they let go, but the small boat came crashing down. Uh, I didn't know that there wasn't hydraulic fluid in the lines, but it didn't matter. I was in charge. It was my responsibility. Uh, I can remember going back to my stateroom that day, sitting down in my chair and uh, thinking this is probably the worst day I will have in the Navy, hopefully. Uh, I felt the feelings of fear, hopelessness, and despair. There's great uncertainty for the days that lay ahead. Uh, that was the day that I went from being proficient and respected on the ship to it felt like the absolute lowest place. I could be. It was in this moment that the Lord humbled me, he transformed me, and he reminded me that he alone is sovereign. You see, I think it's in these moments of life that the Lord reminds us uh, that he is in control and that we are desperate for him, that he is our only hope. And I think that's similar to the situation we face in our text today. As you remember last week, Jacob was on the run from Laban, and by God's grace, the Lord provided a way of escape. 
And just when he had gotten over that trial, he faces a new one today. He must meet his brother Esau. And as we remember, the last thing that Esau said to him is that he would kill him. Or the last thing he said in the text is that the next time he saw his brother, he would surely surely kill him. And so today, we see that the schemer, the wrestler, would wrestle God himself. He would deal with that which he desired and needed most, a blessing from God. So before we read verses 1 through 5, let's pray and ask that God would bless the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, Uh, Lord, for the trials that we undergo. And Lord, I pray for those of us in Christ, Lord, that we would see those trials as gold being refined, as you scraping the dross in our lives, that we may reflect your image for your glory. And Lord, I pray for those that do not know you today, Lord, as the text is preached, Lord, that they would hear not my words, but the very words of God by your Spirit, Lord, that they would repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation. It is in his name, the name above all names that I pray. Amen. We'll begin in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 32. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus your servant Jacob, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. So having wrestled Laban last week in our text with a narrow escape, as you recall, it was God that came in a dream that told Laban not to say anything good or bad to Jacob. Jacob now faces a greater test in our chapter today. In the opening verses of our chapter, we see God's specific mercy and kindness, the preservation of Jacob's life. And I think as we study the text today, we really need to place ourselves in the narrative, understand what Jacob was experiencing and the significance of these circumstances he finds himself in. As you recall last week, when God told Jacob to leave, he left, the text says, with everything, all that he had. This included two wives, two maids, 11 children, servants, and flocks abounding. Uh, When we followed this story... In Genesis 31, last week, it told us that by the time Laban caught wind that Jacob had left, it had already been three days. And then it took took Laban another seven days on this journey, so ten days total, before Laban finally gets to Jacob. Now, I don't know about you, my wife and I, we went on a trip to Maine a couple weeks ago, and it wasn't a ten-day journey, it was about a four-hour journey. And within the first couple hours, our six-year-old and three-year-old had had enough, and they were tired and ready to get to where we were going. So I can't imagine Laban, who has two wives, which is not God's design, and 11 children, uh, and all of these flocks, right, that he was exhausted. uh, That by the time he had gotten to where he was going, he'd traveled over 400 miles to the Jabbok River, the location of our text today. And this, is, and this is where we find Jacob. 
10 plus days into journey, exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And just in the moment of exhaustion, of fear to face Esau, what does God do? In his mercy and in his kindness, God sends angels. This is incredible. Again, considering his circumstances, Jacob had been weary from years of work with Laban. He'd been weary from his recent encounter with Laban. And he was marching into an uncertain situation with his brother Esau. He was going back to his homeland as God had commanded. And here in this moment, God knows what Jacob needs most is his presence and and a reminder that he was with Jacob. I think this is a helpful reminder to you and I if we look at the span of our lives, which is why it's so helpful for us to study the entirety of the book of Genesis. We can see the moments and the times where God comes down and moves in Jacob's life. And we too can see that in our own lives as well, where God comes and moves. and It's almost as though he inserts himself into time and history and invests in us. It's the incredible kindness of God at this moment to comfort Jacob. We don't have a recording of what the angels did or said. Uh, at this place, Manhanaim, which means two camps, uh, we don't, we're not certain exactly what they looked like. Uh, some helpful comment, uh, commentators say of this particular name, meaning uh, two camps, that earlier in Genesis, Genesis 28 we had Bethel, which means the house of God, and here we have camps. It's as though a house is something permanent. And camps were temporary, that God establishes a temporary beachhead to reach out to Jacob, to encourage Jacob to be with Jacob. Just when he needed it most, God reminds Jacob that he is faithful. And he is. There's not a single promise that God has failed to keep or will keep, both then and today. We can trust in the promises of God. One of the things that we've seen over and over every week, it's when we recall, or when the patriarchs recall and remember what God has said in his word, and they obey it, that they receive blessing. It's when they forget the word of God, when they no longer trust in the word of God, that they find themselves in a place of despair. And what we're going to see in the entirety of our text today is that Jacob is submitting to the word of God. That the schemer, the wrestler, is being transformed before our eyes. And I think the reminder that God gives Jacob in this moment is a reminder that you and I need daily and weekly. Where do you get these reminders from? Where are you going to to be encouraged? Are you going to social media and Facebook? Are you turning on the local news? Is it in a newspaper? Quite certain these things are not reminding you of who God is and what he's promised to do. That's why we need the spiritual disciplines. That's why God has given us his word, prayer, fellowship with one another, as a few ways to remind us of who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing. When we meet on Sundays, that's why we pray the word. We sing the word. The word is preached It's to remind us of who God is and also who we are. Marty and I were just talking on the drive down here, the benefit and blessing that the book of Genesis has been. It's given us a clear picture of the mercy and kindness of God, of who he is, but it's also given us a clear picture of who we are. 
Over and over and over again, we see the patriarchs sin and make mistakes. And as they make mistakes, we see the kindness and the mercy of God. It reminds us of who God is and the faithfulness that he offers to those that are in Christ. So following Jacob encountering these angels, it's as though he's got a little pep in his step in verses 3 through 5. He responds by sending a messenger to his brother Esau. And again, I think the geography is helpful here. Edom, which is where Esau lived, was about 100 miles southwest of where Jacob was along the river of the Jabbok. And I make note of this because I think as we read the scriptures, sometimes we think of it in our own terms. Jacob didn't send an email to Esau and was waiting to hear back. This hundred miles would have taken days for the messengers to go to Edom and then for them to return. And as you can imagine, again, Jacob is fearfully waiting on the response from his brother. He has days to mull over and think through, how will my brother respond to my message? Thinking through, reminding, remembering the faithfulness of God. It's as though he sends these messengers to check and see, I wonder if things are good with my brother. Is he going to kill me? What will his response be knowing that I am coming, I'm returning to the land? I'm sure you do this as well. I know I do. Sometimes I send out a text to my wife on the way home from work. How was your day? How are the kids? Do you need anything? And oftentimes I'm trying to figure out what am I walking into when I get home? What kind of situation? How do I need to plan? Again, Esau or Jacob is the great schemer, and his brother's plan are said that he's going to kill him. And so what we see in this text is Jacob kind of eyeing out the land, seeing what awaits him. There's another significant takeaway from this text as well. If you look at verse 4, you see he commanded his servants to say this, You shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Esau. Jacob. The language that Jacob used here shows humility. He refers to Esau as Lord and himself as a servant. This is showing transformation, I think, in Jacob's life. This is showing God is rendering in his life humility. He realizes that he has indeed stolen the birthright and the blessing from his brother. And he's humbling himself before his brother Esau. This is a bit ironic for us as we study the book of Genesis because we know that Jacob is the chosen, the elect by God. He is the one that is really the ruler and the master. As we remember from chapter 25, when God spoke uh, to Rachel, he said, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within, sorry, Rebecca, two peoples from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Though Jacob is clearly the called out, the blessed, he submits himself to his brother here as a servant. The reality of being God's chosen is evident in verse 5, where, where Jacob tells Esau what he has acquired as a servant of Laban. He says, I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord, Lord that I have found favor in your sight. Now, when you first read this text, it may seem as though Jacob is bragging. Look, Esau, the Lord has blessed me. Look what I've done with the birthright and the blessing. I have received all these things. But I don't think that's the case here. 
I think actually what's happening, happening is that he's telling Esau that he doesn't want to be a burden to him. That he has not left the land and is coming back empty-handed. He doesn't, he's not returning to his family needing flocks or anything. God has provided. It's as though uh, my, my, both my parents and my in-laws have been in town recently, and as my, our kind parents do, they, they offer to pay for meals when we go out to dinner. But oftentimes I remind them, you can't pay for our meals for a week at a time. We'll split the check, or we'll take this one, right? Jacob does not want to be a burden to his brother Esau. And this is an evidence of the transformative work that God is doing in Jacob's life. Because up until this point, he's been a taker. But here, he's submitting to Esau, and he's showing Esau that God has blessed him. And as he sends these messengers, Jacob waits. Again, it's not an email or a text message. It's days. He's likely praying. He's likely waiting to see what the response will be. So let's pick back up in verse 6 through 12 to see how Esau responds. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels into two companies, For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. The response of Jacob here is summarized in verse 7. It says, he was greatly afraid and distressed. This wasn't the family reunion that Jacob anticipated. Esau didn't say, I'm coming with my family. I'm coming with my wives and my children. Instead, Moses is very clear. He's coming with 400 men. Esau approaches with a small army, a militia. Moreover, the word that we see used here in the Hebrew for meat is only used elsewhere in the Old Testament where it is dealing with conflict, battle, or war. So when Jacob hears that Esau is meeting him with 400 words, he is anticipating to get decimated. And as a result, he is greatly afraid and distressed. He is no coward. He's anticipating that which seems to be a reality. He's certain that Esau is coming to kill him, as he said. This is the reason for his response. What does Jacob do? The schemer schemes. He divides his family and flocks into two separate camps, so that if one one camp is destroyed, the other will remain. In this moment of of distress, Jacob not only plans, he also prays. And he doesn't just pray. We see in verses 9 through 12 that he prays a desperate prayer. Let's read that now, verses 9 through 12. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me, and the mothers with children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. You see, the pattern of Jacob has been to look to himself in time of need up until this point. 
When, we want, when he wants something or he faces friction, he looks inwardly and he uses his own cunning to concoct a plan. We saw this with the birthright. We saw this with the blessing. We've seen this with Laban. But this particular moment, Jacob prays. And this prayer marks transformation, where Jacob now looks to God for help in trusting him. Just as this was a marker of growth and maturity for Jacob, prayer is a mark of growth and maturity for you and I. Our prayer life is what reflects our own dependence and trust in the Lord. If you look to the great men and women of God throughout church history, you'll find different personalities, different skill sets, different giftings. But you'll find one thing that's in common. These great men and women dependent on God through prayer. You see, for Jacob, for the saints of old, and for you and I, the more we come to know Christ and love Christ, we will depend on Him in prayer. We will trust on Him. Rather than looking to ourselves or to others, we'll begin to look first to God. And you have to make a decision. Do you make it instantaneously? Do you seek the counsel of God? We see that's what Jacob's doing here. And God uses his desperate situation to draw his eyes heavenly, heavenward. Do you remember the vow that Jacob made to God a few weeks ago in Genesis 28 at Bethel? In verses 20 through 22, it says this, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all of that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. This is really unbelievable when we think about it. What is Jacob doing here? He's bartering with the creator of the universe. If God does what Jacob wants him to do, if Jacob has a full belly, if he has warm clothes, if he has peace, then he'll serve God. Then he'll give to him. This vow in chapter 28 is a stark contrast to what we just read in Jacob's prayer today. In 28, he gives an if-then statement to God. Whereas today, we see that Jacob facing the imminent threat of 400 men and an angry brother is desperate for God to intervene. Notice in verse 9, Jacob begins by acknowledging who God is and how God has graciously called each of the men in his family. Jacob humbly acknowledges God's faithfulness to his family and the promises God has made to him both at Bethel and the promises God has made to his forefathers. In this prayer, Jacob demonstrates for us a helpful model on how we can pray. Jacob is praying God's word to God. Consider a text like Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where Jesus promises to give us rest when we go to him. We can pray and ask God to fulfill his promises in our own lives, when we're weary, when we've reached a point of despair. And in the scriptures, we have innumerable promises in God's word that are a treasured gift that we can pray. Perhaps the greatest evidence of the transformative work of God in Jacob's life is found in verse 10. For the first time in his life, Jacob has reached a point where he acknowledges that everything he has received is a gift from God. Moreover, he acknowledges and realizes he's unworthy to receive anything God has given him. He has done nothing to merit God's favor or blessing. He acknowledges that he's unworthy of what the text uses, God's hased 
love. This is God's loyal, covenantal, steadfast love. He's worthy of neither this love nor God's faithfulness. In chapter 28, Jacob says, If you do these things, you will be my God. And now, notice in chapter 32, Jacob acknowledges he is an unworthy servant. This is a beautiful picture for us of God's kindness, faithfulness, and commitment to sanctify those he has called. God has called out Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we've seen the transformative work of God in their lives. And if we are in God, he will do. If we are in Christ, we too will be transformed as well. We see that in 28, God could have left Jacob when he had this attitude of, God, you are here to serve me. We see throughout the story and narrative of Jacob, when Jacob looked to himself and not to God, God could have left Jacob to his own devices and flesh. Over and over again, God is patiently working and moving in the life of Jacob. And I submit to you, this is the same promise for those of us that are in Christ. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the promise we have. This is the promise of the gospel, that God takes those of us, all of us, that are unholy, unworthy, the schemers of the world, and when we go to him, he completely transforms us into a holy, set-apart people, called to do his purpose and his will. As we reflect on the life of Jacob, I would challenge you to look at your own life. Remember, call to mind what the Lord has done, which you do not deserve. Think, a mo- think for a moment about where you would be apart from the intervening work of God. Where would your marriage or family be? What addictions would have consumed you? May our work and our word be of remembrance of God be who he is and what he has done. Would that propel us to greater adoration, worship, and service to him? In verse 10, for the first time, Jacob realizes that this blessing, that the blessing of God does not come by his own scheming and flesh, but by the hand of God through his mercy. He crossed the Jordan at Bethel in chapter 28 with only a staff and some oil, and now God has given him great increase. In our American culture, and as I've lived in New England for the last five years, we've been taught that hard work results in success. That if you just work hard enough, you'll get the desired outcome that you want. I want you to know today that if you are blessed, even if you've worked hard, that it has come by and through the kindness and mercy of God. As we saw earlier, as we see in this text, in this reminder of Jacob, that God has not blessed Jacob for Jacob's sake. That God blesses us, blesses Abraham, that they might be a blessing, that we might be a blessing Your talents and treasures have been given to you not for your own benefit, but for the glory of Christ, that he might be glorified through you. As we saw earlier, a mark of Christian maturity is realizing who God is and who we are in light of that. Jacob is finally beginning to realize his place in the line of Abraham, a humble servant of God. As promised heir, Jacob acknowledges that if Esau prevails, he'll be cut off. The promise of God would go unfulfilled. He is in need of great deliverance, and he cries out to God with the promise that God gave to his family. This was the promise God gave to Abraham, 
in Genesis 13. And throughout his life, Jacob has come to believe and know that God is faithful to keep his promises. It is not the behavior of Jacob that brings blessing and promises. It's God committing to him and his family through a covenant love. Again, Jacob has been disobedient and sinful consistently. It is the covenant promise that Jacob prays to God in response in verse 12. He prays that God direct prays to God directly that he would bless him, that he would remember the promises to his fathers. And he knows that any prosper that he has will come by God alone. And in this moment, as Jacob prays, he's assured that God will be faithful to keep his promises, not because of what Jacob's done, but because of who God is. God will preserve and deliver Jacob because he said he will. For those of us in Christ, he will preserve and deliver us because he said he will. We've learned over and over again that we can trust God and we can trust his word. And the evidence of God's sanctifying work in our lives is that we're growing in our trust and dependence on God just like our forefather Jacob as he prays. Sometimes it's not just the prayer that shows the condition of our heart, but it's the response. It's what we do after we pray. We see this in the words of Christ and the apostles, that prayer and faith are always accompanied by obedience. Keeping the commands of God is parallel to effective prayer. It is worth our time then to evaluate Jacob's response after he prays in verses 13 through 21. Let's read them now. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put a space between the droves. He commanded the one in the front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you, and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded all, also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau. When you find him, you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. What is Esau doing here? Well, he's buttering his brother up. He's sending him flock after flock, goat after goat, oxen after oxen, in various droves. He's hoping that by the time he meets Esau, Esau will be gracious to him, that he'll find favor. And we can look at this in two different ways. I think we face an interpretive fork in the road. Several commentators and theologians approach this text differently. We see what Jacob did. I think the question is, why did he do it? What was the motivation of his heart here? Uh, He sends enough animals for about ten petting zoos here. So the, the, the question again is, 
do we see Jacob doing this out of his own self-glory? Is he trying to preserve himself? Or is he responding to the prayer that he just prayed in obedience? Was it a good thing or a bad thing that Jacob sent these animals to his brother? I, admittedly, I can see it in both ways. In one sense, it might have demonstrated greater faith for Jacob to trust in the prayer that he prayed to God and not sin animals. He could have just trusted that God would keep his promises. That would have proved that Jacob fully trusted in God, don't you think? But in another sense, by Jacob sending the animals, Jacob, Jacob demonstrates humility. He demonstrates a desire to reconcile the relationship with his brother by blessing him through a gift. And I think that the latter is the better interpretation of the text. I draw this conclusion on a, for a couple reasons. Uh, the first is, as we'll study next week when we get to Genesis 33, uh, three, Jacob says to Esau when he meets him, Please, take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. You know, this is the first time in the life of Jacob where we see him serving and giving. This is the first time that he's not seeking to acquire more for himself. I think we see that Jacob here is coupling faith with action. He has wronged his brother and desires to restore this horizontal relationship before he can be right with the Almighty. Another reason I think that this is the right interpretation, and as we've studied themes throughout Genesis, and as we look at the fulfillment of God's promises, we see the role and function of God's people. The first promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. Is that not what Jacob is doing here? and giving to his brother. He's fulfilling the covenant given to his forefathers. Jacob has been blessed, and he is now blessing. Jacob is modeling both reconciliation to his brother, as well as blessing his brother, whom he has stolen the birthright and the blessing from their father. By this action, I think that we see Jacob is finally beginning to become the man God has called him to be. He's finally looking outward and upward rather than inward. Every portion of the text we read today is showing how God is using Jacob's circumstances to mold him, shape him, and transform him. In verses 1 through 5, we see that Jacob was humbled by sending messengers to Esau. He calls himself servant. He calls Esau Lord. In verses 9 through 12, we see Jacob being transformed as instead of scheming, he initially goes to the Lord in prayer. And now in verses 13 through 21, we see that Jacob is going to his brother, pursuing reconciliation, being a blessing because he is blessed. Along the way, we see God moving, shaping, and transforming. And this is a picture for you and I today. That God, when he loves us, when he's called us, when he saved us, he transforms us and makes us into the image of his son, Jesus. As we approach the final ten verses, we deal with a difficult portion of Scripture. Jacob wrestles what I would argue is the pre-incarnate Christ. So let's read verses 22 through 32. Now he arose that same night, and he took two wives and his two maids and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them then and sent them across the stream and sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, 
and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him as he crossed over the Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Having sent gifts to Esau, Jacob sends his entire family across the river at Jabbok in the direction of Esau. He sends them across, and then he comes back alone. This is important for the text. He didn't have a John boat. He held the wives of his ha- the hands of his wives, his maids, and his children, and he crossed this river. Wet and tired, he comes back one last time. He's opposite of his family. He's alone. He's emotionally, physically, spiritually exhausted. And in this moment, he's assaulted in the dark by a man. The supplanter, the schemer, the wrestler is outwitted and out-attacked when he's most vulnerable. We must deal with a few things here before we unpack this passage. I think the first question we have to answer is, how could a man wrestle all night? How could Jacob wrestle from the evening to the daybreak? Well, as we study Jacob, we see that he was a strong man. This connects to his character where he was constantly relying on himself and his own strength. We saw this at his birth when he grasped the heel of his brother Esau. We saw this in the message that Aaron preached where he was strong and he was able to lift up the stone that normally took multiple men to water Rachel's sheep. And we see this that he works for 20 years under the the rule and reign of Laban in very difficult conditions. But here, he now deals with a match that he cannot out-wrestle. And so, here, Jacob lays hold of a man, wrestling him from dusk till daybreak. It's dark, the fight is intense, and Jacob doesn't know if this is a random traveler. Perhaps it's even Esau that's finally caught up with him to end his life. Initially, all we read is that Jacob wrestles with a man. Later on in this passage, we read, as Jacob himself realizes, is that he's wrestled with the living God. This is an example of what theologians call a theophany. God has come down in the form of an angel or a man. It's the pre-incarnate Christ that Jacob has wrestled. Two things happen in this wrestling match in the text. First, Jacob is transformed Secondly, he's blessed. This encounter with God results in inward change, outward change, the change of a name, and a man that ultimately receives the eternal blessing, not by his own hands, but by the the mercy of God. This is the culmination of Jacob's life of wrestling. And I think you and I would realize that Jacob is not too different from us. 
His, own, his whole life, he sought his own blessing. He's gone his own way. At every turn, he sought his own self-preservation and self-glory. He sought a blessing that would never satisfy him. And in this moment, he finally receives that which he desires most. God. On that dark night by the Jabbok River, Jacob received that which can only preserve him. A blessing from God. And as we read this text, it almost seems as though Jacob is an equal to God. That he's able to wrestle with him. That it's an equal match. Who could wrestle God all night and prevail? Don't be fooled. The purpose of this wrestling match is not to demonstrate God's immeasurable power and strength, but to demonstrate and to bring God glory through the transformation and struggle of Jacob. God, in his mercy, allows Jacob to hang in there until morning, to strengthen him, to test him. I think of the analogy of a father teaching his son to play baseball. You imagine if your three-year-old takes the bat in hand and the very first time you throw a strike as fast as you can. The three-year-old would never learn how to hit the ball. Over time, soft pitches, you speed up. The boy becomes a man and he's able to hit the ball. I think that's what God is doing here. He's allowing Jacob to wrestle with him that he might be strengthened, that he might be challenged, that he might be tested. You see, this match is not so much about what God is getting out of it, although he is getting much glory. It's about what God is doing in Jacob's life. It's about God transforming him. It's about God forcing Jacob to cling to him. As Jacob wrestles, though, notice at the very end, at the mere touch of his thigh, he's permanently changed. There's a tension in the text. God doesn't come down and snap his fingers so that Jacob's changed. It's personal. This wrestling match is intimate. There's no social distancing here. For hours, Jacob intimately wrestles with God. Have you ever seen an, a boxing match or watched MMA, an MMA fight where the fighters, the boxers are so exhausted that at the end they can barely throw a punch? They just stand there almost hugging one another to stay up? I think that's a picture of what's happening here. Jacob is spent. He's exhausted, but he's clinging to God. I love that our verse for VBS this year is from Jeremiah 29, 13, which says, You will seek me and find me when you search with me for all of your heart. In this moment, Jacob finally submits to God, knowing that he alone will bless him. Jacob, in this moment, is searching for him with all his heart. In God's mercy and by His Spirit, this is exactly what we need to hear today. Do you know God? Have you clung to Christ? Moreover, does He have you? Or are you like Jacob, wrestling your whole life for your own glory? I think we all have a wrestling match that we must wrestle but unlike Jacob by the river of the Jabbok, our wrestling match happens at the cross of Christ. That That is where we wrestle with, and that's where God deals with us. That's where we receive a blessing, and that blessing is the blood of His Son. 
You see, it is only through Jesus that we have a way to the Father. There is no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If we are to get to God, we must go through a cross. And it is not a cross where we set the rules. They have been established. Like Jacob, it will cost you. You must be willing to die to self that Christ might rule and reign. You see, the wrestling match that is won with God is won by losing, by submitting to Him, by coming to the end of yourself. Unless you do this, you will never have His Son. Only when you're ready to leave this life and the world behind for the cross of Christ and His glory can you receive God's blessing. It's in this moment, I trust that if you are in Christ, the story gives you great reassurance, for you have wrestled with God, and in wrestling you have lost, submitting to Him. You've given Him your life. And in this moment, if you are not in Christ, if you've not wrestled with God, I pray that His Spirit would give you great fear and trepidation, knowing that the only thing that you can do that will give you hope for eternity is to throw yourself at Him, to cling to Him, to plead with Him that He might bless you, to wrestle Him all night if you must, until He gives you His Son. That's what Jacob did. He wrestled all night. He wrestled to the break of day. He lost that he might gain much. And look at the blessing that God gives here. He demands that Jacob tell him his name. This is the moment of repentance for Jacob. His shame and his sin is laid bare. You see, Jacob's name means deceiver, supplanter, the one who usurps. Jacob is admitting who he is. That his identity, the entirety of his life, has been manifested by seeking to overthrow and overcome others. And now in this beautiful picture of the gospel, in this moment of humility... God demonstrates his incredible mercy and kindness. As Jacob owns who he is, his sin, and what he has done, God deals mercifully with him by giving him a new identity, by giving him a new name. When we come to Christ, he does not cause us to despair, but he restores us, he lifts us up. We are given the name of his son. And in this text, God gives Jacob the name Israel. It's not just a name for him, it's a name for his people. It's a reminder for generations to come that God is faithful, that God will preserve, that God will uplift and uphold his people when they cling to him, when they go to him, when they trust him, when they wrestle with him. I submit to you today that when you encounter the living God, when he touches you just like Jacob, you will be changed forever. This is one of the greatest promises we have in Christ, that God promises to change us and to make us and to form us into the image of His Son. He gives us His Holy Spirit as His seal, and He gives us abundant life. We become new creatures all together when we come to Christ. In our cultural Christianity, I think we bought into the lie that we can, we can believe in Christ without actually loving Him or His bride. We believe the lie that we can be Christians on Sunday and live like the world the rest of the week. We believe the lie that a prayer prayed one time is sufficient, though we want nothing to do with God and His people the rest of our lives. 
That's not the gospel, and that's not what we see for those that walk with God. He preserves them, he upholds them, and by great and desperate situations and dark nights, he forms them to make them like Jesus. Just like Jacob walked away limping for the remainder of his life, if you are in Christ, you will bear his marks, and the evidence that you are in him is you will persevere to the end. When the sun rises over the river that morning, Jacob limps away transformed. God has changed him outwardly, inwardly, and given him a new name. He walks away boldly, confidently, and hopeful for the first time, not in himself, but in his God. He's prepared to meet Esau. The hope he has is no longer in his own flesh. His scheming and plotting will no longer bring him peace. His trust and hope are in the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He knows he's a blessed man and that this blessing is due to no merit of his own, but by the mercy and kindness of God to meet him on a dark night right where he was, to meet him in his sin and his shame, and to patiently transform him into the man that would be the man God had called him to be. Whatever season of life or stage you may be in today, the journey of Jacob and his wrestling with the living God teaches us that our greatest need is God himself that we have a God that will meet us in the dark and will not let us go as we cling to him. That even in the darkest hours, God is shaping us, transforming us, and fashioning us into the image of his Son. That he is always faithful to keep his promises and that in keeping his promises, his promises to us, he will put us in situations and circumstances that show us our desperate need for him. And in great desperation, when our strength is gone and our faith is strained, it is God in the dark that will hold us fast. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the greatest need of everyone in this room is your Son. God, we need Christ. We need to know him. We need to cling to him. We need to wrestle with him. God, I pray that we would remember your faithfulness, your mercy, and your kindness to us. For those that are in Christ today, Lord, I pray they would cling to you all the more and give their lives in praise and adoration. Lord, if there is anyone in this room that does not know Christ, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would deal with them, that there is no forgiveness of sins apart from the blood of Jesus. And if it takes them all night, would they wrestle with you and give themselves to you for their own good and for the glory of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.